Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the concept of privilege and how it influences our systems and perpetuates inequities. We also discuss how building relationships across groups in a community can help us begin to address these systemic issues, while at the same time forging connections and building trust. My guest is Jacqueline Font Guzman, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Eastern Mennonite University and Strategic Vision Director for EMU's Center of Justice and Peacebuilding. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. Talk to me a little bit about the work you do, um, what it is and, and why you find it so important. I've been doing a lot of work um, lately with diversity, equity, and inclusion, but looking at it from the perspective of relationship-based um, DEI, as is usually referred to, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and grounding it in really the importance of connecting people and building relationships across differences in order to really be able to change institutionally structures that are oppressive for some and are privileging others, um, many times unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but mostly unintentionally. And so that's the work I've been doing in, in the last years, um, working a lot with anti-racism and equity and justice for LGBTQIA plus um, individuals, um, Latinx, and, and groups that have been historically and traditionally marginalized. The point, you there, there are several points, but two of the points I want to really dig into. One was the idea of um, systems and structures. I think we have a hard time with systems and structures in the U.S. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. My thoughts are, you know, that whole idea of manifest destiny and individual and pull yourself up. and But really, systems and structures mean everything. I would love to hear your thoughts on how systems and structures play a role in our lives and in the course of our lives. Of course, we have agency. Of course, we have responsibility to work hard and do all that. But, uh, you know, I feel like we can't, we, we never can have that balanced conversation. It's either one or the other. So how do you see systems and structures influencing us and influencing the way we engage with the world? That's a great question. And I, and I think um, in many ways, we are part of the systems and therefore part of the structure. So there's really no way of getting out of the system. That's the way I see it. And in the case of the US in particular, we have structures and institutions and organizations and legal systems, healthcare systems, educational systems that truly by design have been privileging some people over other, mostly white, male, cisgendered, individuals that have some sort of power and usually educated. And I, I say that because I am also a lawyer and did some litigation work for, for some time significantly. And so I have that lens and frame of reference of the law in terms of structures and systems. And I can see how when you study the constitution and you study the original documents of how this nation is formed and shaped you know, we the people didn't really mean we the people. And if you look at the Federalist Papers and all the other history that is surfacing now after Floyd's murder, you see that it's really by design. When you look about the segregation in this nation, 
and how communities were purposely segregated by something I'm sure you and many of your audience may know in terms of redlining and, and literally sitting down and segregating and deciding what sections, geographical areas or communities were going to be allowed to take out loans and buy properties and buy homes and which ones were not. That is a legacy that still lives with us today. So the intentionality comes, that's the way the system was designed. And so we are living and are some surviving, some trying to thrive, some thriving in a system that when you enter it, and me as a Latina woman um, from Puerto Rico entering the system in the U.S., well, the systems are not really built for me. They're built with, in the case of education, with admission tests that are built for people that have a particular worldview and a particular privilege of having been able to go to a particular high school in a particular geographical area with particular parents and the wording and the language of how all these tests that seem to be objective and seem to be equal are really not. So that for me is a system. The system is all the sets of rules and policies and procedures and historical documents that have come to life that have created the structures and the systems for a group of people. And now we're asking everyone to be able to live in, into them and, and claim that they're equal, but they're really not. And so there is always this tension between our individual agency walking into the systems and trying to either navigate those systems and structures of power and oppression or dismantling them and changing them. And this is kind of a continuum. And so we choose our battles, right? When is it appropriate to really try to make changes and where is it appropriate to just learn how to navigate it until you can actually change it? And so there's a close relationship between you know, our agency and the systems and the structures that are in place um, in the U.S. specifically, I'm referring to now. Other countries have them as well, but I'm focusing here in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, I think systems obviously come into play and structures whenever something is a community or society is built. So you brought up the idea of, you know, for those for whom the system is working, well, let's just move on. You know, it's like, but it's working. It's fine. So we're fine now, right? Without... Acknowledging and I think understanding, and this gets into that intentionality, unintentionality that you talked about a second ago. I, I think, you know, we can understand like if I break my arm, uh, you know, when I'm a child and growing, and it may affect the growth of my arm, right? And then maybe it's not as strong. I can still play sports and I can still work a little harder and get it to people understand that. But when it comes to things that aren't physical, it's sometimes difficult to understand. So I wonder if you can talk about that sort of intentional versus unintentional, because I think there is this, these battle lines are drawn. Like, if you're not with me, you must be against me. And I don't think that's always true. Some individuals have bought into the idea that they're really superior or privileged. And, and, and that is something that I think it's taught. It's not something, I don't think you're born with that. I think you're taught into... Um, I don't know who was a famous philosopher who said that um, that he did not know who invented water or, or who was aware of it first, but it wasn't a fish, right? Because fish are immersed in this water, and so they don't, it's, it's a thing. They don't know it's, a, it's something that there's a difference between water and not being immersed in water. So I think that lack of, of awareness doesn't necessarily come from evil intention. It's just that that is what you've been taught. That's what your surrounding is. And you don't know any better, and in the case of the U.S., because you are so segregated as a community overall, 
there's some individuals in rural areas, for example, in the U.S. that that literally were born and 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 raised and lived, and many of them even to this day, now that there's TV, they've seen black people in a TV, or maybe they have now travel and seen them, but that was not their experience growing up. They literally don't know what being black or being Latino or even being queer may be like. They have never had the opportunity to engage in a relationship, um, nevertheless cross paths um, individuals that are different than them. And so within these bubbles, we just are formed and are shaped and, and that shapes who we are. And so I think that's where I say like there's the unintentional part of it of, you know, you don't know any better. And so that's the unintentional part. I think there's also sometimes an intentionality of once you know all of that and become aware of some things that you may decide not to lose your privilege. And therefore, it will be okay to discriminate against someone in your mind that you perceive as being less than you or less equal or less human And that is now a choice and an intentionality, right? Now is you are choosing to do that or to discriminate or to push aside someone or marginalize them because it's an issue of power. You don't want to share your power. You don't want to engage with others in ways that you feel will be threatening to you. And I think when you go down that path, it's intentional. I cannot claim ignorance anymore. When you have the case, and I'm blanking on her name right now, but there was this Um, incident that went viral about this woman who was in, in New York City at Central Park um, walking a dog and there was a black man who actually asked her to, he was birdwatching and asked her to politely to comply with an ordinance so that um, she would put her dog on a leash that was, she was just walking around the dog without being in a leash and she dialed 911 and started in a conversation with him which he recorded in his own personal phone She knew exactly what she was doing. I am a white woman. I'm going to call 911. I'm going to say that there's a black man threatening me. And she knew exactly that the system was going to be working in her favor. She knew the reaction that that was going to have from police and, and security enforcing individuals. There's an intentionality there. And that is not something that we can claim is ignorance. It was clear from her conversation with this black man who had the audacity while being black and bird watching, asked her to comply with an ordinance. Um, that is intentionality. But you also have the other aspects of individuals making comments, engaging in things like microaggressions, which is basically putting down someone with something that seems to be a joke, where people can authentically not see the harm that they're doing. And so I make a distinction between, you know, intentional discrimination versus the unintentional one. I think our system favors people to have all these biases and prejudices because of the way we're shaped and formed through the system, but we still have the agency to change that. Yes, absolutely. We have the agency to change that. And I'm so glad you mentioned bias because that's exactly where I wanted to go next, is once we become aware uh, of these privileges that we have, we do have a choice. Um, and sometimes it's hard, but in that bird watching example, later upon reflection, you know, if she reflected at all, Wow, I didn't know that was in me. 
I, you know, wow. Oh my God, I've got some work to do. Like, but then you got to do the work. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to try to recognize your own biases. And you also brought up the example of growing up in a bubble, growing up in a neighborhood, whatever, and your neighborhood is your neighborhood. And so it is what, it's your world and it's how you orient yourself. And, and then you learn hopefully later that there are other things out there and then you decide what to do with that. So in deciding what to do with that in your work, how do you help people reckon with their biases. If you're going to engage in conversations and you're going to ask the question, I think you need to own what you hear. I think you need to be responsible for what you hear and what you do with it. Um, I think staying neutral when you hear something that is clearly biased in a way that is oppressing someone. And it's actually not neutral, right? Right. And so it's not neutral, but when you're trying to use that as neutrality, that I think is probably a, a way of perpetuating this violence and this inequity. So you must be able to, to feel or understand or think that you have a responsibility with what you hear. So what are you going to do with that once you have it? What are you going to do with that self-awareness? How do you work with people to get to that self-awareness? And, and for me, a big piece of it is by sharing in relationships through storytelling and trying to humanize and share our common humanity. And we don't do that because we're too busy, again, in our own work or in our own bubble or we don't have time. Or we think that by just talking, we're not doing a lot. And I think that just talking doesn't get you anywhere. That would be the neutral part. Like, I'm just going to stay out of it, but I'm not really staying out of it because by not doing anything, I'm actually supporting a state or a an action that is violent against someone, that would be that neutral part that is not really neutral. But you also have the opportunity to talk and then act upon what you are hearing. And I think that is not a waste of time. That is, in, in fact, the only way that people have the authentic capacity to change and change systems and structures and institutions and policies within those institutions is to have that capacity of self-reflection, self-awareness, and then be, being able to understand the impact that your inaction or action, depending on what it is, is causing upon others. And we can only learn that when we start talking with each other, when we start creating spaces that allow people to be able to talk with each other. So a lot of the work I do in the, from diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we have chosen at EMU a model that is relationship-based, is spending a lot of time creating the spaces for people to be able to connect across differences and having communications or working in projects together or doing something where you don't stay within your own unit. And, and difference can be in an array of ways, right? It could be in universities that are so hierarchical, it could be having a faculty member with tenure, a professor engaging with a staff person or a custodial or someone from maintenance. It is about creating those kind of spaces where I think you have the possibility of changing the systems because if you think about it, people are all over an institution. So that means that if I can get people to engage in relationships, I'm impacting the entire institution because relationships are everywhere. And so that is a way of affecting change and, and making structures and system change because it almost becomes a domino effect. People start talking, the narrative starts taking some traction, and all of a sudden, literally before you know it, people at the executive teams or leadership um, positions are talking about starting to change policies 
that they didn't realize were hurting some people and others. I mean, he like trying to get people to engage with their biases, trying to get people in a privileged position to, I mean, I don't necessarily see it as giving up privilege, but people do see it as I have to give something up to do this work. They do. Can you talk about any examples of doing the work and any of this stuff coming up? how you dealt with it? Absolutely. So one of the things, for example, in making change and working with people and how to support them in decentering that privilege, like being aware of it and being aware of the power they hold. Um, one of the, the, the biggest challenges and things that I confront all the time is actually fear. Fear of either perceiving it as I am losing power, fear of not being politically correct, you know, and I'm putting politically correct in quotes, um, fear of not knowing how to do because they don't know how to have these conversations because they've never had them when they're talking about diversity, um, fear of harming someone by their comments. So sometimes it stems from a place of good, not from a place of, you know, not wanting to engage. I've heard words like, you know, people are frozen, which is no way to be able to engage with others um, and with diversity. So that is something that I constantly hear. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with diversity, equity, and inclusion expert Jacqueline Font-Guzman about how privilege influences our systems and how building relationships across difference can help address those inequities. Another one of the things that are, that are constantly present in, in doing this work um, that is challenging is I've become aware of the lack of psychological safety that we have overall, like everywhere, um, in different institutions, in different communities, in the healthcare settings. I, I do a lot of consulting for healthcare work as well, um, in academic institutions. It's a, a profound lack of psychological safety. And by that, I mean um, the fear to be able to make a statement, make a comment, provide some suggestion, defer or have a difference with what you're saying or where you're coming from, not having the safety to do that because people feel that somehow either their job will be on the line um, there would be some sort of retaliation if it's an employee-employer relationship, um, that there will be a price to pay somehow. And that has become a real, real, real challenge that I'm seeing in many institutions and in many different settings and areas. And also the misconception, and, and I draw a lot from the work of um, Edmondson, for, for, for this, when I talk about psychological safety, and I've tried to embed this in my theory of change of DEI here at EMU, it's also confusing psychological safety as we all need to have a kumbaya and be happy and have harmony and and, and not express what we're saying and, and be really nice to each other, um, but not, not creating this space of niceness and at the same time holding people accountable. And so the tension then becomes, you're not in your best learning zone, right? You have low psychological safety and there is low accountability or no motivation. And you go into this apathy zone where no one changes anything. And that is just horrible, right? So it's hard to make changes and movements when you're in those spaces. And then fear for change, right? Um, doing a lot of um, also consulting and work within my own institution in terms of making curriculum changes to embed some of this work and other people's voices in the curriculum and the fear of some, you know, 
members of the faculty. I mean, EMU has actually done a really, really good job of doing a process where we've been working to do this in a more systematic way, listening to voices of students and faculty and staff and everyone, like really bringing the voices of students into this whole process. But some institutions are not there yet. They don't want to bring the students. And again, it's a perception of a loss of power and a perception of, you know, this whole debates around critical race theory that are happening in many places. It's fear. It's not wanting to change. It's keeping the status quo. It's, there's a lot of that. And, and the lack of psychological safety for people to be able to engage in these conversations without feeling that, that they will have a high, high price to pay. And so those are things that I've been confronting, and it's everywhere. We haven't quite figured out that you can hold people accountable and have real roles, and that still means that you can create a psychological safe space. That's an incredibly important point and and something that I think we should be talking about more because it is true that it's been branded kumbaya, like, oh, safe space. And and that's not it at all. My husband really likes to distinguish between cancel culture and consequence culture. You know, <laughs> yes. You're facing consequences for what you do, but that doesn't mean, you know, maybe you can learn from it, right? And there's not a lot of room to disagree in a trusting space, a safe, trusting space. And and I don't know whether the U.S. ever had that or what, how we lost it, but it's nice to be doing work to try to recreate it. We're not always clear also about what we're listening for or, or, or what are we being brought into? Are we listening for facts? Are we listening for emotions? Are we listening for both things? Are we listening? What is it that we're going to pick up of the story when people are sharing something with us? We're not taught how to be intentional about what exactly are we listening for. And I think the default and the easiest thing sometimes in the context of employment and work is to just focus on like the facts or you know the reports that are supposed to go on some official document to prove something or X or Y or Z or whatever it is. But we're not taught to be intentional about that. What are we listening for? That's something we need to get better at. Um, we are also um, not intentional about when we bring people into a conversation, what are we bringing them? Are we bringing them for input, feedback, understanding, convincing? Um, just sharing information, an authentic dialogue, a debate. Um, I find that aside from the people that are doing this work, which get that, in our day-to-day, we are not forming managers, leaders, followers in ways that authentically set them up for success when they're going to have to go and talk with other people that are different. Um, so so I think that is something that that I try to role model and work hard at? What am I inviting people to do and how? The other big, big aspect is the difference between different aspects of culture and cross-cultural kind of engagement and how that relates with diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's safer to talk about culture, but culture doesn't address power issues. Culture is just telling you what is someone else's worldview or how they see the world, but it doesn't tell you the how they got to see that world or why they get to see the way they see. And so if we're going to have these conversations, we really should be intentional about what is the difference between cultural, intercultural, cross-cultural, and when we're talking about DEI and when we're talking about anti-racism and having difficult conversations. No, it's not about 
us having a different worldview. It goes deeper than that. It's about how are we sustaining the structures of oppression and their systems in place that are harming someone and that has really not much to do with our worldviews or our culture. So I think that is an important piece when we're inviting people to dialogue and conversation. How do you help maybe those who have the privilege, the power, the positionality, reckon with all of that and uh, and engage in a way that's helpful to evolving our systems and cultivating connections? The centering of privilege and power is a really difficult thing to do. What I do is I use my own lived experiences, actually, and bring them to the table when I'm engaging with others who are in positions of power. So I am originally from Puerto Rico, and when I was raised up in Puerto Rico, I come from a very privileged family. I had an education. I could come to the United States and educate myself, went back to Puerto Rico, worked for many, 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 many years, most of my life there. And I had the privilege, right? It's a small island, Caribbean. You know, I just needed to say who my mother was or who my uncle was and things would happen. And I enjoyed that privilege. You use that privilege for good and I used it and I dedicated my life as a litigator to actually work with incarcerated individuals that were either in the prison system or mental health institutions. But I realized that I was there in a very position of power. And, and I remember clearly one time I was interviewing a prisoner. He was my client and we were talking and we were actually across the table and he started sharing a story about how he had ended up there. And I remember thinking something clicking me and, and, and said, wow, I could so easily be on the other side of this table had I not had a supporting family, had I not had the, network, the networks that I had, had I not had the opportunity to have an education, how I not had so many other things. And it, and it was a time where I realized people are in jail for making stupid mistakes that for me are a mistake from my position of privilege, but for someone who hasn't had the privilege, it's not a mistake. All of a sudden it's a terrible criminal act and three strikes and you're out and then you're in jail forever. And so that was a big aha moment for me in terms of the beginnings of trying to cement a little bit better what that privilege meant that I had. You mentioned earlier that things were different when you came to the States. So how did that change? I remember coming to the States and all of a sudden losing all my privilege, just geographically. I was no longer white enough, even though I'm light-skinned. I had an accent and... I wasn't part of the privileged group, no matter how many degrees I had or no matter, you know, who I was. And so I, in a way, have been on both ends. And I was a woman in a place traditionally also. I had that same issue in Puerto Rico, but I only had to deal with the gender issue and all the other connections and background and family helped me overcome that. But here I was just a Latina, a woman, not white enough and with an accent. And things changed completely, how I had to navigate structures of power and racism in ways that I had never had to deal with back then. And so when I talk to people about how are your ways of decentering your privilege and becoming aware, I try to lead them to having those same aha moments that I had when I was interviewing this client of mine decades ago in a prison. No matter how much privilege you have, there's certainly a one point in time in your life that you were somehow not feeling 
like you belong. And it could be because you're in a poor neighborhood and you feel you don't belong, right? It could be for all sorts of reasons. But tapping into the experiential part of what that feels like is what I like to do when I am working with people or talking about how to decenter your privilege. Because again, it's like the fish that is immersed in water. They, they don't know water is a thing. It's just the way they see the world, right? And so I try to use those experiences and try to support people into identifying what are some times where they have experienced that sense of unbelongingness or inequity. And, and that's usually a good entry point, that it's okay to have these conversations and how the fact that they are fearful of hurting someone in itself comes from a position of privilege. That the fact that you can own the privilege to know that your words and your actions of how you interact can have such a profound negative impact and harm on someone else in itself is also a position of privilege. So what do we need to do to use the power you have in a more effective way? And what do we need to do to be able to start sharing some of that power? Thank you to my guest, Jacqueline Font-Guzman, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Eastern Mennonite University and Strategic Vision Director for EMU's Center of Justice and Peacebuilding. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.